Hello and welcome to EndNotes, a WooCast production. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Kelly, and joining me today is Nolan McCarty, author of the new book, Polarization, What Everyone Needs to Know. Nolan is the Susan Dodd Brown Professor of Politics and Public Affairs at Princeton. His research interests include U.S. politics, democratic political institutions, and political game theory. In his latest book, Nolan takes a deep dive into the origins, development, and implications of polarized politics in America. Contrary to public opinion, he argues that the 2016 election was a natural outgrowth of 40 years of polarized politics rather than a significant break with the past. Welcome to the show, Nolan. Great. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why don't we start from the beginning and tell tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this book? Well, the easiest answer is Oxford University Press asked me to. Uh, they have a series called What Everyone Needs to Know About X, and they needed someone to write the polarization book. Uh, I guess the right question is, why did I agree to say, <laughs> right. to say yes to them? Um, I think it goes back to over the past five or six years, I've encountered, or longer even, I've encountered a number of uh, arguments in the public debate, whether by journalists or on social media or by academics who are not specialists, where I thought the arguments were just simply wrong, or if they weren't wrong, they were stated with certainty, yet lacking completely uh, in terms of data. So I had written uh, several essays, mostly for a general academic audience, trying to explain uh, the facts about polarization, or at least as I saw them and the rest of political science literature saw them. Um, So I had done some work in just trying to explicate what it is I think everyone, what we know and what everyone needs to know. Uh, So I I thought it was a great opportunity to both bring a lot of that work together uh, and to present in a way that would be more accessible to the general public. So what does everyone need to know? I mean, if you had to boil it down to sort of the three biggest takeaways from this book, what would those be? Well, I think there's uh, really three important points that I want to make. Uh, and they're mostly in the first chapter. So if people just want to read the first chapter, <laughs> you know, uh, the rest is commentary. Um, the first is about the trajectory of polarization. You'll often hear arguments of the sort that American politics has always been polarized. Uh, it was just as bad in the past as it is now. There's nothing to see here. Or you'll hear arguments that American politics isn't that polarized. The differences between Democrats and Republicans are very small. Uh, fact is, uh, both of those views are you know, incorrect or lacking. Uh, first, polarization right now is very high by contemporary standards. Uh, in the United States. Uh, The differences between Democrats and Republicans on a whole variety of public policy issues are larger than they have been uh, at any time in the recent past. If you look at congressional polarization, which is my specialty, where we can measure partisan behavior of members of Congress going all the way back to the end of the Civil War, it turns out that the current era is the highest over that entire period of time. Uh, so if you think about the analogy, the differences between Democrats and Republicans today are larger than those that coming out of a civil war where one party accused the other party of being traitors. So uh, it's, it's extremely high, and that's important to remember. 
second part of the trajectory is that it wasn't always high. It was actually quite low uh, during uh, the Progressive Era, uh, World War II, the New Deal, 1950s and 1960s. Uh, the current uh, period of big polarization uh, started in the late 1970s. Uh, interestingly, I started studying it at, at around 1992 or 1993, so we'd only had 15 years of it to study at that point. <laughs> I guess I've been lucky career-wise, but in no other way, but career-wise, that it's continued for 25 more years, uh, so we have a lot more, <laughs> a lot more to learn. Yeah. Um, the second point is that it's very pervasive across all of our institutions. Uh, we started studying in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Turns out that the patterns of partisanship uh, and ideological polarization in the House and the Senate are almost identical. They began growing in the 1970s about the same time and show exactly the same pattern. But we also see polarization in the courts, not just the Supreme Court, the federal courts. We see it within the executive branch among political appointees and career civil servants. We see it in the states. Uh, and, you know, shock no one for me to point out that we see it in the media. Uh, so polarization is something that's not just limited to, you know, Congress or, you know, very high-level partisans, uh, but it pervades all of, our all of our institutions. And finally, the thing that I think will shock most people is that the connection between polarization among voters and the polarization of the parties is not as straightforward as people think. Uh, there's actually some debate as to the extent to which the public is polarized at all. If you look at public opinion surveys, many American voters still choose moderate positions across a very large number of issues. Uh, and uh, that's probably not the case. The public probably is polarized uh, somewhat. But most of the evidence suggests that it's polarization in response to what the parties and the elites have done, not that the parties and the elites have polarized because that's what the public wanted them to do. Uh, so I think that's an important takeaway and something that, that many people will find surprising. What was um, the hardest section or chapter of this book to write? Well, I think there were two parts that were hard to write. Uh, the first hard chapter was the one on social media. Uh, obviously, the role that social media plays in polarizing elections uh, very salient right now, given what happened in uh, 2016. Uh, but this is one of those areas, as I mentioned before, a lot of strong claims were being made without any data. Uh, so some people were convinced that social media has nothing to do with polarization. Some were saying that it you know, dictated the 2016 election and the manipulation of social media by outside actors was really important. So it was an area in which lots of claims were being made but not that much data was available. And so there haven't been that many uh, studies. Um, most of the studies have been, that have been done on the role of social media in polarization are based on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's fun. A lot of people are on Twitter, but most voters aren't. Most voters are on Facebook. We still don't have very good data from Facebook as to how people get news and political information on that platform. Uh, until we do that, we're still going to be in a situation where people are making very strong claims on the basis of very, very little data. The second chapter that was hard to write was the conclusion. Uh, as the book was sketched out, the conclusion was going to be, you know, what we learned from the 2016 election. 
uh, and I refused to start writing it for a very long time because, as you might imagine, uh, the trajectory of the Trump administration is not very predictable. So I was always worried that I would write something that would turn out to be wrong uh, a week later. But I, the book was on deadline, so I knew I would have to finish it at some point. So I finally did you know, uh, start to break down the question of whether or not uh, Trumpism, Donald Trump, represented kind of a new uh, trajectory in American politics or whether it was a continuation of the old. It's an interesting question because Donald Trump is not even an orthodox conservative Republican. Uh, he took lots of positions on trade uh, that are anathema to most Republicans or were anathema to most Republicans. Uh, his position on immigration was well outside the Republican establishment. He projected a liberal tolerant uh, image on uh, sexuality and gay rights. Uh, it was atypical. Uh, so he seemed like, on many policy areas, kind of a different uh, style of Republican, a different style of Republican. Uh, but at the same time, he was governing in the context of having to coordinate with a more tr traditional conservative Republican Party. So where I came down was that almost all of Trump's achievements were essentially those that would have happened had he been a generic Republican like Jeb Rubio, uh, is the joke I use in the book, uh, and that many of the things in which he was uh, heterodox just didn't come to fruition because they were not positions that the conventional Republican Party uh, accepted. The major exception, however, was his uh, behavior in office in terms of you know his norm breaking and uh, you know uh, unusual deployment of presidential powers, uh, shall we say? Uh, and that's very, I mean, that's a very troubling area. And that was really the new development. The innovations in ideology weren't that, but just the style, the style of governing. Yet even there, I took uh, a somewhat uh, optimistic take that, you know, perhaps it wasn't as bad as it seemed. Then I had to finish the book. So I finished the book, the following paragraph. Yet cloth can tatter so long before it rips. The preservation of liberal democracy in the United States will eventually require overcoming our deep divisions in order to rekindle our faith in the virtues of compromise. So I wrote that. I thought it was fairly optimistic, suggesting that the fabric was not yet ripped, just a little bit worn. I closed the browser or opened the browser, I should say, found that Jeff Sessions had been fired and really had to consider whether I wanted to rewrite the chapter. <laughs> but I, I was overdue. I, I stuck with it. I sent it in. I still kind of believe uh, – that uh, at some point we can overcome these divisions and kind of repair uh, some of the tatters uh, of our democracy. But uh, I mean, I'm still waiting for proof of that. You might have just answered my next question, which is that, uh, you know, the book is touted as a guide for anyone who wants to fix the cracks in the system. So it sounds like you think that's possible. Um, I want to be careful here. I'm not known as a reformer's reformer. Um, I view my role in the kind of reform process uh, as the kind of uh, dispenser of cold water. So I don't question the value of reform or that reforms are needed, but I think it's very important for people to understand and diagnose the problems correctly. And so I'm much more interested in, in diagnosing the problems correctly so that people will not spin their wheels on reform 
or uh, put a lot of energy into reforms that are just not going to have much payoff. I'm well known for uh, being uh, somewhat skeptical about the importance of gerrymandering and political districting, at least as a source of polarization. There's some uh, better evidence that it has a, a impacts on representation, but it doesn't really affect polarization. So I wouldn't want someone to who cares about polarization to spend a lot of time trying to fix gerrymandering or trying to fix primary elections. And so I think I'm helping reformers by just telling them to direct their energies elsewhere, probably into the campaign finance, probably into the campaign finance system, uh, probably into some kind of counter in some counterintuitive ways, perhaps by strengthening parties uh, relative to interest groups. Uh, and a whole host of other things that are, uh, you know, not not obvious to much of the reform community because they haven't really thought hard enough about uh, the nature of the underlying problems. Yeah, that leads well into the next question I have because given that we're a policy school, we like to ask our professors, you know, what are sort of the main policy implications uh, in the book? So I focus mostly on how polarization uh, has distorted the policy process. Uh, the first order effect of polarization has been more or less to incapacitate uh, Congress. Uh, Congress's ability to pass major legislation, respond to social and economic change, is really withered uh, as a response of, of polarization. And that's had implications for the relative power of Congress vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the courts and vis-a-vis uh, -vis the states. Now, some scholars will argue that that's okay, that the slack can be picked up by executive orders, uh, more active judiciaries, uh, innovation in the states. Um, I argue against that, that in fact, uh, our system is really predicated on a st strong national legislature it's a source of deliberation. It's a su source of legitimacy. It's a source of statutes, which gives us certainty in the law, which is a predicate for the rule of law. And without a stronger national legislature, um, all of these other band-aids uh, through executive power, active courts, and uh, states uh, will probably not uh, be conducive to good public policy in the long run. So I think the main uh, policy prescription is to think hard about reforming Congress and to think hard about ways in which the national legislature can be strengthened uh, in an era of polarization. I'm less optimistic that we can, can or even should try to do things to limit polarization, but I think we should think about how Congress can reassert its role uh, despite the fact that it's uh, deeply divided on partisan lines. So um, why do you think someone should add this to their summer reading list since it's, you know, the book just came out July 2019? Um, so I'm not going to argue that you should give up the Tom Clancy novel <laughs> instead. Um, but, you know, we are going into a very consequential presidential election. Uh, recently had two, two debates. There are, you know, 25 candidates on the Democratic side uh, who are putting forward, you know, visions for uh, how they want to govern. Uh, the president will respond with his vision for a second term. Uh, the 
it, it's going to be probably one of the most consequential presidential elections uh, in our lifetime. We say that about every election, but I really, I really think this one is. Um, but it's going to be uh, deeply affected by political polarization and the dynamics that come that come out of it. Uh, the response of the Democratic Party, its elites and activists uh, to Donald Trump uh, has been primarily to move the party further to the left, which is more polarizing. Uh, and as a response, I think uh, it will open up space for uh, the Republicans to continue to uh, hew to the right and increase polarization uh, even further. And in ways we often don't see in presidential elections, which tend to be the one arena which there are at least some moderate voices. I don't think we'll see that this time. So I think for anyone who really wants to get deeper context of how we reach this point, uh, I think the book is a good place to start. Well, I think we are just about out of time, but I want to thank you so much for joining us. Polarization, What Everyone Needs to Know is available now through Oxford University Press, Amazon, and in bookstores across the country. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on SoundCloud. A big thank you to our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, our audio editor, Bonalise Rosado, and our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by WooCast, the podcast enterprise of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Woodrow Wilson School.